One should do great things as one fries small fish, simply, boldly, without fear. It's like the wisest thing I've ever read. It's so amazing. Hi, everyone. Today, Claire and I will discuss the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu. For reasons that I hope will be clear in a minute, I'd like the quote of the day to come from Bruce Lee. This very famous quote, in which, uh, explaining his own seeming supernatural martial arts ability, he said, Be like water making its way through cracks. Do not be assertive, but adjust to the object, and you shall find a way around or through it. If nothing within you stays rigid, outward things will disclose themselves. Empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless like water. If you put water into a cup, it becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, and it becomes the bottle. You put it in a teapot, it becomes the teapot. Now water can flow, or it can crash. Be water, my friend. And for a conversation about this and many other things, let's go into that chat with me and Claire. So, what is the Tao? Wow, you're going... (laughs) Tao or Tao, spelled differently, romanized in different ways. My sister, who's learned Chinese, says it's pronounced. And I'm not going to be, you know, saying the stresses correctly, because those are very difficult in Chinese. But it's close to something like Tao De Jing. (laughs) What is it? That's a trick question. Well, think about it. (laughs) I realize, out of the gate, it's kind of annoying. It goes without saying, but here I go saying it. This is going to be a conversation in which we talk about this book as it bounced off of our own souls. You know what I mean? Hmm. You know, we can't... There's something like 700 Chinese commentaries on this book. Hmm. 250 English translations. Hmm. It's one of those texts in which everyone sees kind of what they want to see. So I consulted some... Lots of different translations and some commentaries just to make sure I wasn't so off base. But, you know, this is what the Tao means to us, not what it means. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. We can't claim to know what it means. Yeah. We're just going to be talking about how we reacted to it. And according to the Tao, we're doing okay with that approach. Well, that's very true. Um, The very famous quote, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. It's from the Tao Te Ching. I know. I've loved that for my whole life, basically, and I didn't know it was from... This book. So we can consider this conversation slash reading, you know, the first step, an important step. Mm-hmm. Also, um, Lao Tzu says things very often like, by not saying it, you say it best, and people who know don't speak. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> the less we say, the better. <laughs> maybe, we should, maybe we should end now. <laughs> I know, that's a tricky question. That's a tricky argument in literally a book. You know what I mean? Well, let me start with... Section 70. I think this is a good way to start. This is what Lao Tzu says, My words are easy to understand and easy to put into practice. Yet no one in the world seems to understand them or put them into practice. And then he says later, My words are precious beyond measure, but I am not one to flaunt my riches. The wise wear plain clothes and keep their gems out of sight. So over and over he says things like this. Everything he says is in some way elusive or restrained or hushed. Mm-hmm. So again, we've had several conversations like this recently in which this will be a kind of attempt to grasp a shade or a ghost or a shadow mm-hmm. and pin it down. And I think that's a productive exercise, but 
they are fundamentally this text is fundamentally unpendownable, which is one of its great appeals, isn't it? Yes. It's literally the closest I've ever come to reading something that is that aligns with my deepest sort of convictions and suspicions about existence. And I sup- I think it's because it is so elusive and it doesn't it doesn't claim to fully understand what the way and this light is that is the mother of the whole of all of existence that was before God, you know? I love that literally mystery and uncertainty is the mother of all things. We should give the three people listening, two of which are family members, a general description <laughs> a general description of what this book is like. It's it's very small. You could read it in, you know, forty minutes. It's about two and a half thousand years old. One of those texts that maybe has one author, maybe has many. Mm-hmm. It's a series of little verses or poems or aphorisms or proverbs about many things, virtuous living, good rulers, the origin and nature of the universe. This is my absolute favorite part of the book. It's number 11. A wheel may have 30 spokes, but its usefulness lies in the empty hub. A jar is formed from clay, but its usefulness lies in the empty center. A room is made from four walls, but its usefulness lies in the space between. Matter is necessary to give form, but the value of reality lies in its immateriality. Everything that lives has a physical body, but the value of a life is measured by the soul. I love the value of reality lies in its immateriality. It does seem like all things that are material and concrete are a sort of frame or a vessel for what is the most valuable, the most seemingly immortal, like the soul or time. A clock is a material thing, but... It's a sort of, almost a sort of vessel for us to, to hold time. So what is the body of vessel hold? What is the body of vessel for? Why do you, what does this mean? Am I being too annoyingly? It, I don't think it means here? the body is unimportant. I think that's the exact opposite uh, from what he, he's saying. You need both. You need a sort of, you need sort of limitations, physical limitations if you want to say that or even um yeah a container a container to hold or to make known or to preserve the things in life that are the most difficult to describe or grasp well this leads me to my first question (laughs) This, this thing in life that is most difficult to describe or grasp which is filling up the container of your body mm-hmm. is obviously the Tao, right? Yeah, our soul, which is part so of So what that. is that? <laughs> yeah. Should we start with the, the first one? Well, yeah, and I was going to say too, I really like this about the book. It doesn't pretend to know how to, you know, f- describe the soul. It doesn't it's the the main argument seems to be there's something so beautiful and something so bright that seems to be the source of everything um that you don't have to worry about trying to describe yeah acknowledge that it's there because surprisingly i think a lot of us at different times in our life forget or will even you know it's easy to ignore a thing that you don't know how to describe <laughs> well this is how this is the first verse the Tao that can be understood is not the eternal cosmic Tao. Yeah. So, the subject of this book is that which cannot be understood. Yeah, I is, love the, it. is the first thing that we're told. And that's 
that is such a relief, you know, like, okay, we don't have to, we, we don't have to try to just explain it. But I love that he, Lao Tzu, this wonderfully, this kind of personality that comes through. Again, we don't know if one person actually composed these, but there is this wonderfully humble, almost cheeky, some humor here. Yeah. Um, gentle personality that comes through. He acknowledges that this can't be understood or described and yet is okay trying to. Yeah. So the Tao that can be understood is not the eternal cosmic Tao, just as an idea that can be expressed in words is not the infinite idea. I love that. And yet this ineffable Tao is the source of all spirit and matter, expressing itself. It is the mother of all created things. Not to desire material things is to know the freedom of spirituality, and to desire them is to suffer the limitations of matter. Yet these two things, matter and spirit, so different in nature, have the same origin. This unity is the mystery of mysteries and the gateway to spirituality. So, mm-hmm. yeah, to to now attempt something that is doomed to fail, the Tao is something like everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is the source of everything. Mm-hmm. The source of spirit and matter. And and I think that's where the the beauty of the book comes in. This is something that can't be described, but I'm about to try. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's the trying, I think. That's really lovely. But it's gentle trying. It's not yeah. so insistent. It's exactly. not so like, oh, no, I failed. It's not so... Yes. it's. If I, I fail, keep... so what? That's part of the Tao, too. Yeah. I, and I keep coming back to this all the time. But, you know, Keats's idea of now you want to avoid irritable reaching after facts. Facts and, and reason, yeah. And that doesn't... He is not trying to force any explanations. He is... Lao Tzu is in a river, and he's letting the river take him where the river is the Tao, and instead of fighting against the current, he's letting the river do its thing. He knows that to fight against the current would be futile. Mm-hmm. I don't know how quickly this metaphor will fall apart. Let's see. If the universe, if being, if Tao, existence is a river, um, it has a current, it has a direction, it has a momentum, and you're in it, and it's pushing you. And you can fight against it and try to defy fate or your nature but to do so would be futile. Rather, you can kind of go with the current of the river and use its momentum. If you move with the momentum of the river, suddenly you have the strength of the river behind you in each action. So simply submitting to the Tao and saying, I will let you do what you do, is an immense source of strength, is kind of what you're responding to. You love the pervasive force of this thing. It does. There is even a section about water that's really lovely. Oh, yeah. It does feel very gentle, like like water, like gentle water kind of settling into wherever, whatever places it will gently, you know what I mean? That's exactly what he says. He says, um, this is verse 8, true goodness is like water. It nurtures everything and harms nothing. Like water, it ever seeks the lowest place, the place that all others avoid. This is the way of the Tao. For a dwelling, it chooses the quiet meadow. For a heart, the circling eddy. In generosity it is kind, in speech it is sincere, in power it is order, in action it is gentle, in mo- in movement it is rhythm. Mm. I like that bit about the places all other people avoid, because it does seem like you always want to look for goodness somewhere else. It can't be here. It can't be, yeah. <laughs> you know, in places that <laughs> others are avoiding. It's got to be some other place, you know, the grass is greener on the other side. Yeah. We live in Provo. 2021 Provo, Utah. And it's like, well, masterpieces can't be written here. This is just Provo. 
<laughs> and I'm always taking a kind of literary, you know, I, I try to write poems and I try to teach poetry and I try to encourage my students to believe that the tradition of great poetry isn't over. We have this thing in our brains. It's like, well, if I was living in Florence in the 1300s, mm-hmm. that's when it could really go off. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or England in the 1590s. No wonder. Mm-hmm. Water goes to the lowest place. There is, you know, the divine thing reaches every crack. Yeah. We were, our kids are in love with this new show. It's on Netflix, apparently. What's it called? Outro Yuck. <laughs> no, there's that yuck show that. About who the, was? Who was, yeah. Who was show? It's pretty funny, actually. Yeah. Um, <laughs> teaches them about famous people in world history. Uh, it features Bruce Lee. So I was showing them all these Bruce Lee clips. It's an interview in which he says we should be like water. I, I have no idea whether or not he read this text, but there is something to that, like um, to use the momentum of your surroundings for your own benefit. You know, to not to not fight against. I mean, what do I know? What do I know about martial arts? <laughs> far far less than nothing. But let it be natural and not forced. To use the weight of your opponent to your advantage. You know what I mean? And to and to find to let it be natural and not forced. Yeah, there. I mean, this is a metaphor for life. So, what, how does this apply to life? If you're not doing martial arts, is this still relevant? Yes, I do think so. In the book, he talks a lot about how to lead people. You know, how to be yeah, um, and yeah, how to be a good leader. But um, like how to rule an empire. But this applies to any part of life, I think. And I really love this. Is number sixty called fearless. One should do great things as one fries small fish, simply, boldly, without fear. That's so amazing. It's like the wisest thing I've ever read. <laughs> It's so amazing. And I always do the opposite. You know what I mean? I'm like, okay, this is a really important thing now. I need to tense up every single muscle in my body, <laughs> yeah. clench my jaw. <laughs> you know? Right. And it does seem like I only know when it comes to painting, for example, when I'm relaxed, when I'm not. If I took a paintbrush and I tried with all my might to do the most natural line, right? It wouldn't work. Yeah. I kind of even have to like. Relax my shoulders a little bit. I do a little shoulder wiggle before I do a line because I know I have to really do this naturally and in a relaxed way, or the line it will show that. That's what Bruce Lee said: you have to be like water. So when you fry a small fish, you don't think really about what you're doing. Maybe you do if it was your first time mm-hmm. and you're like learning how to cook, but you do it on autopilot. Yeah, you still do it boldly, like with intention, right? Boldly, so good. Yeah, great. It's so great because. It turns the little fish frying into both um, into a sort of noble act, right? So even simple things can be a um, well, a goes, great thing. It goes to the yin and yang, which we'll get to eventually. But there, yeah, there is no there is no greatness without simplicity, and there is no simplicity without greatness. Back to Emerson. Emerson says, in fact, to be simple is to be great. Mm-hmm. Greatness necessitates simplicity. In fact, to be great. To be simple is to be great. Your drawing example is a really good one because our kids are still in the stage where they're totally unselfconscious, and therefore their drawings are amazing. Oh yeah, every line is so confident. Not amazing in like a cute little kid way, but amazing.、Mm-hmm. I think to be an adult, to become an adult, is to be told that there's this there's this falling. Every human enacts a fall out of Eden. You know what I mean? To grow up and to become an adult 
is to fall out of Eden in microcosm, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, you lose your innocence. I mean, I don't want to idolize childhood that much. I mean, I kind of do. I, I do drink the Wordsworth Kool-Aid. I do believe childhood is an innocent time full of wonder and we are kind of Edenic. And so, what am I saying? I'm saying that to become an adult is to be told, draw as if there was no possibility of failure while knowing that there is every possibility of failure. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or draw as if there's no audience while knowing that there is an immense audience. So, it's this trap that adults, we fall out of this trap. Mm. We suddenly start shaking and, and looking over our shoulder and aware of the possibility of failure, aware of being watched. This yeah. is a big problem. I hear a lot of um, musicians talk about that too. They have to forget about their audience when they're making music, where it just it's not as good. They have to lose themselves in the music and just write what they are passionate about or things go weird. Yeah, so genius is a kind of second reattained childhood. Mm. It's a kind of talent, genius you could describe as a kind of talent that operates as if talent wasn't there or talent that is not conscious because there's difference. Many people are talented. Mm -hmm. I can't draw like my son. I think if I practice, I could maybe get back to that place. Well, this is my next question. What what would that practice entail? So, how do you take your talent and and forget that it exists so that you can go back to this place where you're acting without knowing that you have talent. <laughs> you know what I mean? But then you have the best of both worlds. Talent without the consciousness of itself. Well, I don't know if I would call it talent, but experience. You know, sometimes I go back and I'll look at sketches for paintings, and sometimes I like them so much more because it was like me frying small fish, you know? I kind of right. did it simply, boldly, and without fear. And then when I get into the actual painting, that's where the mistakes start to happen because I become fearful. I wonder, will this commission go over well? (laughs) Exactly, yeah. So, now your question is, how can I not do that? (laughs) Yeah, it's a question that I'm not sure, I mean, I can't answer. I have not attained it. It takes, I think, even the best geniuses many, many years to figure this out. How do you attain that kind of second childhood? Experience is, is... a necessary ingredient on the path, you have no, you know, it's kind of popularized as this kind of flow state. You you have no awareness of what you're doing because um, you have to get out of your own way. That maybe is the simplest way of phrasing the question. How do you get out of your own way? Read section 20 because I think it's about the problem of getting in our own way and yeah. what too much self-consciousness or too much knowledge can 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 do in a harmful way. If you would be at peace, beware of great knowledge. That which is not feared by the common people is probably not worth worrying about. There is a vast difference between book learning and true knowledge of the Tao. Common people are joyful. They celebrate feast days and hold festivals in springtime. Scholars scowl like babies that have not learned to smile. They look forlorn like homeless wanderers. Common people have plenty. Scholars are never satisfied. Common people are vibrant with common sense. Scholars seem dull and confused. Common people are useful. Scholars are useless. <laughs> Knowledge of the Tao, how vast. I am, I am like a sailor far from shore, adrift on a boundless ocean. Oh, how I long to be as a child, suckling milk from Mother Tao. Scholars slammed. <laughs> I know. <laughs> What's so bad about scholars? I know. I 
I have to keep laughing at that. It's amazing. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, there comes a point where you go from somebody curious and open to the world and experience to somebody so bent on solving and proving and solidifying ideas that you become a closed book again. And you lose the you lose the ability to dance. You know, like <laughs> you you, you and I. You and I have a strange relationship with dance, <laughs> but it is a good metaphor for so many of the things we've been talking about lately. <laughs> we rather loathe it. The pr very primitive part of me likes it. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, in a, in a kind of like rite of spring <laughs> stomping. No, I'm, I would never just dance. It's interesting that you say the primitive part of you. I mean, this is the point. This is the point that I wanted to make. You're absolutely right. That it is childlike, you know. Mm -hmm. We, the only reason we don't like dancing is because we're grown-ups who are overly self-conscious. Overthinking it. We just need to dance like no one's watching. I don't think so. I think Lao Tzu said that. Isn't that in one of these verses? Dance like no one's watching? I think Faith Hill said that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. There's this building on campus that I pass sometimes where, well, back in the day, we, you, could, you could watch dance classes happening. So, there'd be all these dancers um, I think that could teach you a lot about life. You know, the the less you think about technique, the better you probably are. Mm -hmm. A person who has who has achieved some kind of peak in that art form, I bet. Again, what do I know? <laughs> but I bet never thinks about technique. Had ha, did for a long time and then stopped, and mm -hmm. doesn't anymore. Yeah, probably started out not thinking about it. Started doing it, you know, studying it, and then started thinking about it. And then if they became good, they stopped. And be, be, if they, because, because they stopped thinking about it, they became good. Exactly. Yeah. And if they don't become very good, at, then, yeah, they're probably too rigid and too focused on the rules and techniques. I tell my students in poetry classes that they already possess every, every quality, every intellectual and physical even quality they need to enjoy great poetry. They just don't think that they do. They're getting in their yeah. own way. When they were kids, they could. They could enjoy Shakespeare and William Blake mm -hmm. and Emily Dickinson when they were kids. And then they learned, know, oh, these have, these have quote-unquote meanings, mm -hmm. quote-unquote interpretations. This is where the, the scholar slamming, I think, is necessary. Yes. Too much of that is dance dissection. Mm-hmm. Susan Sontag opens her wonderful essay, which I love, called Against Interpretation, by saying that the earliest art surely was ecstatic and incantatory and had very little to do with cerebral knowing. You know, it was erotic. You know, it had, it had bodily... It was dance. Mm. Yeah, there is actually something in here about rhythm. It said we all have rhythm, and I thought that was really cool. Well, some of us have less than others. Yeah, but the fact that you just said that is, that's the scholar part of you, and that's not good, <laughs> probably, you know what I mean? Oh, I, you know, you're absolutely right. I'm too uptight, mm -hmm. which is why I don't and can't dance. Yeah. If I was my true whole self, I would. <laughs> Something to look forward to. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> please don't. Put that on my retirement bucket list. Please don't become comfortable with dance. <laughs> no. <laughs> just kidding you're a professor so how did you feel when you read this all the stuff about you know not 
not to know the things you ought to know is folly, to know that there are some things you cannot know is wisdom. Well, that's what Socrates said. So, in a way, it, it goes right back to the root of both Eastern and Western philosophical traditions that wisdom is knowing that you don't know. Mm-hmm. So, in a way, it fits right at home with you know academic pursuits. But on the other hand, yeah, we we as humans need this as a constant reminder that yeah. we mostly don't know. And not only should we accept and admit that we don't know, but it, we should go, to, uh, go out of our way to put ourselves in that state of uncertainty. I really love when he says, learn to taste the tasteless. That, that kind of sums up my whole idea of religion and, you know, spirituality. Why? There's, there's just so much I don't know. I sense that there's this light and source of good, a source of goodness and even immortality, but um, it has no form or shape to me, and I don't know how to grasp at it. I don't know anything really about it, but um, you don't need to. But to learn to taste the tasteless is—it's such a, first of all, aesthetically pleasing in its juxtaposition there, and in it, in in the impossibility of the assignment. You know what I mean? I think that's also what I love so much about poetry. You're constantly trying to taste the the immaterial. You're trying to sh- let others taste your like immaterial thoughts and feelings. Do you know what I'm trying to say? I kind of do. There's a kind of new age mumbo jumbo alarm going on in the back, going, well, yeah. going off in the back of my brain. So, oh yeah, can you quiet that alarm? <laughs> what, what can you say that will that will make this? He looks really concerned right now. While still embracing the mystery, can we keep at least one foot on the ground? What does that mean, taste the tasteless? Well, take hope, for example. Hope is this weird thing in my life that it, that keeps coming up, and I don't know where it's from, why it's there, but it's just this uh, mercy that I keep getting from some unknown place, you know what I mean? And um, I guess I'm always trying to find ways to make it more material, to to understand it. That's so it's I, good to... Do, what? Yeah, is there an example? So it's Wednesday evening. Isaac is spilling milk all over the counter. Magda slips in it and starts to cry. And you hear a whisper from the universe, taste the tasteless. I mean, <laughs> how is this lived? No, I don't feel anything spiritual when milk is spilled. <laughs> well, you, you do, but it's from some other realm. Evil spirits. <laughs> No. How is this lived? What does it look like? I, I just want to kind of like glue it to something slightly stickier. I know what you mean. Sometimes, and I think probably most people um, have this the same experience, sometimes I feel this deep conviction that everything's just going to be okay, even though I know it's not. And with that strange, um, I don't know what to call it, conviction, I, I feel a desire to to make it more physical, to kind of understand it more. Like, where is it from, you know? Mm, I see. Why do I feel that? Can I hold on to that more, like, physically? Somehow prove to other people, like to you, that there's something I really feel, (laughs) you know? I think it's good that we try to understand those sort of beautiful feelings that we have throughout our lives and to try to express them. But at the same time, acknowledge that they are they are immaterial. So you're never going to 
you you don't have to try to beat your head against the wall, try, you know, trying to give them a... Yeah, you go with the river. Is this what you're talking about? We should talk about metaphysics and the metaphysics in this book and the yin and the yang. Douglas, mm-hmm. There's this man named Douglas Harding, but let me just put this on the table and see what you make of it. Mm-hmm. This man named Douglas Harding wrote this book called On Having No Head. Yeah. And what's the subtitle? The subtitle is Zen and the Rediscovery of the Obvious. It's quite a good book. Um, it's a good title. <laughs> the argument is that there's no you, really, and this isn't really a metaphor. There's no you in the sense that there is only life and the world seen from... And and what you think is you is life and the world seen from a certain point of view. Yeah. Yeah, there's that Li Po poem about the mountain. This I don't know. It ends something like, This mountain and I, I stare at this mountain. The mountain alone remains. Or something like this. So the longer you look at a thing and give it your attention the more you realize that there is only that thing. Life is just all one. Yes. There is one thing, and it's called the Tao, and there are different maybe shapes inside of it or incarnations among it, different ebbs and flows inside of it. One part, but you are just one part of it looking at a flower, which is just another part of it. Mm. And everything, there's no you other than a collection of sense perceptions is an argument. Hmm. The world seen from a certain point of view. Yeah. But the world seen from a certain point of view is just the world. A camera shows us the world from a certain point of view, but there's no I inside the camera. Yeah. Alan Watts is this kind of like famous British Buddhist writer and commentator. Has this wonderful thing where he says, um, I think it's in commentary on the Tao Te Ching. You know, look at the stars and... You can you can see them as totally alien and out there and apathetic to you mm-hmm. and proof that you don't matter, proof that you're a speck of dust. Mm-hmm. Or you can see them as the back of you. Mm-hmm. You're looking at the back of your own head when you look at the stars. Why the and back? they well because there's one ball. There's a sphere. You know what I mean? <laughs> okay. So th- to look at the stars is to look at the other side of what you are. Oh, I see. <laughs> and they looking at you is to look at the other side of what they are. Mm. And he says that, you know, to see this, when you know that, you know that you never die. That's pretty much what I feel like when I go out into nature. Well, this is section 42, yin and yang. <clears throat> the Tao produces unity. It's interesting, I had this thought reading this. Um, if you think about Genesis, God creating something out of nothing or out of the void. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? seems to be Christians or the West in general obsessed with this idea of how can something arise out of nothing, whereas this is a worldview in which the, the, the important question isn't that, but rather how can variety arise out of unity? You know, mm. the Tao would rewrite Genesis to say, in the beginning, there was one thing, and then it became many things. So, you know, let's remind ourselves that we can go back to that one thing. Mm. This is section 42. The Tao produces unity. Unity produces duality. Duality produces trinity. Trinity produces all things. I think that's very, very interesting. All things produce, all things contain both the negative principle, yin, and the positive principle, yang, The third principle, energetic vitality, qi, makes them harmonious. 
There are some things which it is a gain to lose, and a loss to gain. This may not be what they teach in school, but it is the first lesson in the Tao. I totally follow, but but then what is the energetic vitality? Well, I don't, I'm not quite sure I wouldn't be able to say what that word chi means. Uh, I'm quite interested in the fact that there seems to be a trinity here, and that this trinity idea seems important enough to crop up in religion after religion. Hmm. So you could call this kind of like Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Even the Holy Ghost is this kind of energetic vitality. Hmm. You know, there's this thing that is vital but formless. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Father, Son, Holy Ghost, and they three create trinity produces all things. This is... This is what the Tao is teaching us. It could be be father, mother, child. It's a kind of holy unity. Even inside the mind, you know, like a Freudian, like id, ego, superego. I just love this idea that contradiction or contrast or opposites, you know, even politically, you know, healthy debate among multiple parties is absolutely necessary. So Mm -hmm. this famous symbol of the yin and the yang, the white and the black, and the the dot of each color in each. Mm -hmm. They're inseparable and codependent. It totally makes sense to me. All things are one, and then that produces opposites, or at least contains opposites. Yeah. But then the next step is is the energetic vitality, what those opposites create, like the spark that is created from them to being together? Could be. I mean, Tao is... Apparently hard to translate, but often translated as the way. So it could be the way, the the path or the way. So the path or the way that you traverse in perfect balance between them. If you think of a tightrope walker or road, high road between two abysses, you know, so you do want to attain a a kind of balance. I mean, it does say negative and positive. Well, yeah, I don't know if we should moralize that, though. Like, yeah. Think about a painting, negative space and positive space. You yeah, know what I mean? True. And a good painting has found a path that in which both are in balance. Mm-hmm. Think of a, a set of scales in, in which things are weighted. You know, there's a path. You want to get that marker to land in the middle. I like the idea of those, the positive and negative together, creating energetic vitality. Because it does seem like a thing that is only one, one way and unbalanced is... Is sort of dead. It's so pleasurable to put difficult um, thoughts into words like this and to give them names in so many ways. Isn't it amazing to have just the simple words yin and yang? We crave making these very abstract thoughts more concrete, even by just giving them a name. Then they have like a physical thing that goes with them. <laughs> Do they? I mean, are they are they nameable? They are not, but I think the fact that still humans should try and do try, and that's not a bad thing, but obviously he's using words to describe these things, so that's not a bad thing. He's curious, and he wants to share his thoughts. There's a balance between doing something and not doing it, so yeah, finding a balance. like He would be going too far... If he, what? At what point would this book become, go against its own teachings? Well, if it, if it became too insistent. I mean, I think this water water metaphor is really important. Water goes where it goes. It will reach whatever hearts it will. 
what does this mean for a life? I feel like you know, we, we've certainly honored the ineffability of this book, but I think that Lao Tzu is right when he says, my words are easy to understand and easy to put into practice. I don't yeah. think he's being ironic. No, and I, I agree. So we've kind of like tried to catch this fog in a net mm-hmm. yeah. and, and fallen on our faces in doing so. But <laughs> it's, I don't know if, what would you say about your daily life after having read this book and thought about it? To find the balance, to find the way, to find the path of life on which you're not getting in your own way. You're not trying to fight against the momentum of the current of the universe. I think the advice of doing things, great things, simply, boldly, and without fear, that's that's something I can use in my everyday life and that I've been thinking about. Even today, this morning on my run, I remembered that and thought, you know, I don't need to think about if I'll ever become better at running or if yeah. I'll ever yeah. um, maybe will not be able to do it anymore or need to do it simply, be in the moment and... Um, and with confidence. I took the kids to the library last week, and my son was pretty interested in it. Our daughter, though, instantly was bored, didn't want to be there. And because I'm, you know, kind of a sadist, I suppose, I've been thinking of ways to indoctrinate them into the cult of reading. They must become readers. You know, so there's this like very untau, very neurotic, unbalanced desire that I have. Mm hmm. To get them to read. But the way, the way with a capital W would, would be to what? I think relax. Yeah, relax. And and I think just by example, you know, thinking, okay, well, she'll see me reading. She'll see how much it matters to me. Maybe one day she'll sort of organically fall into it. Yeah. I, I, I also think it's important to point out that it's not to let go. It's not to do nothing. Yeah. It's not to just lie in bed and let the universe happen to you. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's somewhere in here I wouldn't be able to find the page, but is doing doing things and not doing things. You know, we should avoid doing things too strenuously and we should avoid not doing things too strenuously. Very Bhagavad Gita in that sense. Yeah, moderation so, in all things. Exactly. The way is a way between these two poles. So the yin and the yang symbol. One opposite would be to give up and say, well, she will be who she will be. I won't interfere at all. I won't try to inspire or instruct at all. And the other end of the pole would be to say like, regimented, this is what we're doing for two hours every day, you will do it. Mm-hmm. The way, the good way between these two poles is a mix of both, some some moderate balance, which involves a lot of relaxing. It's yeah. simple. That's what he means, what Lao Tzu means when he, when he says it's simple. I mean, I can't really think of any good thing that has come in my life from me becoming just tense and trying to force something. It you, see, I know it seems like it would uh, something good would come out of that, but it doesn't work. And I do it all the time. You know, I'm <laughs> anxious about this, too hopeful about that, too fearful about this. But maybe this is where this desire talk comes in. I'm always confused, honestly, when spiritual texts like this talk about desire, because maybe I don't know what kind of desire they're talking about. But desire is the, the ultimate manifestation of trying too hard forcing something to be that's not what could be another word for that yeah neuroticism i mean that's another (laughs) word for it i don't think lao tzu is desireless i think he's found the way because i feel like there's a there's a lot of 
seeming contradictions that yeah. aren't actual contradictions because he's presenting us with this balanced scale. So he'll say, don't do that, and also don't do its opposite. Extreme perfection seems imperfect, for it never stops perfecting. Extreme fulfillment appears empty, for it never stops filling. Extreme straightness appears crooked, extreme skill clumsy, extreme eloquence stammering. Not extreme perfection, but purity and clarity are the targets at which we should aim. Yeah, that's really cool. It seems like it's the um, the act of not being able to stop that makes a thing bad. And here he says... You're oh, a slave to something. Well, I don't know. What do you think? I think fear of mistake causes mistakes. Mm-hmm. Fear of failure causes failure. And this uh, not being able to stop, you know, it never stops perfecting, never stops feeling. Um, I wonder if that goes back to the idea of, you know, you need to be able to be sit still and do nothing. I mean, we've probably overused this water metaphor. <laughs> but apparently when, when a, a person is drowning, don't lifeguards say to them, don't fight, you know, relax. I know, at least in, like, quicksand. There's a way in which tensing against the current causes more damage. Mm-hmm. In verse 43, Lao Tzu says, The soft overcomes the hard, the flexible conquers the stiff, the ethereal penetrates the solid. Be like water, in other words. Yeah, that's really cool. I think this is a metaphor for life. We go through life, you know, our kids spill water, our relatives get cancer. I mean, what about cancer? Should we just be like, oh, well, that's part of the path. Does this mean we should be indifferent to pain? No. There's one part where he says being rigid means to be dead. Right. So Corp- I, Corpses, that's right. Yeah, corpses yeah. are rigid. Right. Uh, and that's I always tell my kids when they're really upset about something, I'm like, it's good that you're crying right now because that means you're not a robot, you know? That means you're alive. So as long as we are able to go through changes and we can fluctuate and move like water, that means we're alive and... Yeah, you have to move back. I mean, it's it's good to cry, I suppose, but you don't want to cry too much. Right, moderation again. Yeah, you have to let the pendulum swing back. Um, over and over again, Tao is referred to as the mother of us all. I'm wondering what your thoughts are as a mother on this metaphor. Section 25, for example, there is being that encompasses all, and it existed before Earth or the universe. Calm, indeed, and immaterial. It is singular and changeless. All creation flows from it and returns to it. It is the world's mother. I cannot define it, but I will call it Tao. If forced to describe it, I will call it great. The great is evasive. The evasive is distant. The distant is ever coming near. The Tao is great. So is the universe great. So is Earth. And so is humanity. Humanity is the child of Earth. Earth is the child of the universe. The universe is the child of the Tao. The Tao has no mother, but is mother of all. That's gorgeous. I love that part about it's distant, but ever coming closer. This book is really good at celebrating the... Celebrating is a weird word. Honoring the uh, the contrasts and things and how how it's, it's a good thing. The yin and the yang, the positive and the negative together, like the Tao. This mother figure, distant, but coming, but always coming closer. And that just really rings true. There's no thing that doesn't have that uh, energetic vitality, really. Yeah. Is this just an accidental metaphor that she's a mother? It sounds like a leading question, but... Oh, yeah, you asked about the mother part. Is there some meaning in gendering her like that? 
Well, it's definitely my favorite image of a um, heavenly mother. <laughs> well, you know, the obvious mothers give life and nurture. So if there's one thing from which all things come out of, they're not going to use the metaphor of a father to describe it. Wouldn't make any sense. There's a really lovely part, too, that says the Tao is present in all beginnings. That's beautiful. It's so beautiful. It, In <laughs> fact, I, I thought about that yesterday before I started painting. I had an empty canvas and I remembered that line and it kind of gave me a nice magic injection. What does it mean? I don't know. I, there's, there's a sort of magic about new beginnings. Unbounded potential? Exactly. Unbounded potential that's what an embryo is. You know, that's what a baby is. Scary um, is what they are. Beautiful and scary. Right. And they're going to be charged with negative and positive. Yeah. And that is what will make them alive. So I want to try to sum up to walk the way of the Tao is <laughs> a journey of a thousand miles which in which we've only taken the first few steps. So <laughs> by no means looking down from the mountaintop here. But it, I love, I want to summarize several of the takeaways from me. I love that it would involve relaxing, letting go, mm-hmm. not knowing. In, in a strange paradoxical way, this podcast is part of the problem because it, it would involve talking less about it. I don't know, though, because How, he's talking about it. Well, but this book is very small, <laughs> you know, True, talk you a little bit about it, but then get off, get off and go live. I mean... I, that, back to the scholars bit. I love this contrast between co- quote-unquote common people and the scholars. Scholars scowl like babies. Scholars are dull. Scholars are useless. How does he describe common people? This is so beautiful to me. Common people are joyful. They celebrate feast days and hold festivals in springtime. So there's a pattern of traditional common life. It's very Ecclesiastes. There's a time for planting and a time for sowing. How should humans live? What is the way of the Tao? They should plant in the spring. They should reap in the fall. When it's the winter, they shovel their driveways. And not be racked by extreme desires that will make them focus on the outcome of things. Oh, I wish it was summer. Or I wish it was winter. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm the kind of person who, whenever he's reading a book, wishes he was reading some other book. (laughs) It's horrible. (laughs) Really horrible. So, to become, to, to walk the way of the Tao must involve, like, dancing... In the cycles no, no. <laughs> of the year. You know what I mean? Yeah. How can you tell the dancer from the dance? William Butler Yeats. You know, you commune with natural cycles in their rhythm and give your body to those rhythms. I don't know. It's like we have small kids that are beautiful and scary. It's a cycle of our lives that we have to just fully embrace. And you celebrate holidays or feasts or whatever. You celebrate feasts. And I could see like you get so far in your studies of the human condition, you'd be like, well, what's the point of taking part in a holiday? Everything is terrible. <laughs> they mean <laughs> or things nothing. are too serious. This is a fraud. It's a construct. This, You know what I mean? Yeah, you can easily deconstruct anything. Part of the poison of scholarship surely is those things are too common for me. I'm above... I know that Christmas yeah, is this too- weird amalgamation of yeah. ancient Egyptian, Greco-Roman, German... You know, it's actually like yeah, an common. appropriation of Horus rising from the... You know what I mean? Common so as in casual. Like, I can see through these petty traditions when really that's, that's, that's straying way off the Tao. Yes. The way to live is to be like, it's Christmas. Let's give gifts to each other and celebrate Jesus. 
because that's that's the festival. And also being able, I think this is a huge, this is a thing that I don't know how to do either, but the ability to take a break. Nature is the guide in all things. You're exactly right. It's like the, the cherry tree outside of our window doesn't see through cherry trees, isn't above cherry trees. It knows when it's time to blossom and when it's time to to bring its fruit. Yeah, and in the and winter, it's, it's time not... to take a break, exactly. In the winter, it's not like tormented by a desire to bloom. It's not saying this isn't fair. Yeah. How dare the universe do this to me? It needs the break. So to think less about this, there's, a, there's that verse in the New Testament, think, let not, let not thy right hand think what thy left hand is doing. I think that's really key here. It's a kind of Christian analog. In other words, don't worry so much. That's my takeaway. So it's kind of mystical scripture. Let not thy right hand know what thy left hand is yeah, doing. Yeah, honestly, I never really knew what that meant. <laughs> well, to me, this is what it means today at this point in my life. Like, draw that line on your canvas without knowing that you're drawing a line. Because if you know what you're doing, you'll screw up. Mm. Don't be outside of yourself looking at yourself. Don't be outside of yourself looking at yourself. Don't overanalyze. Don't overcomplicate. Don't meta-think everything. Mm-hmm. Don't be outside yourself looking at yourself. And also that lovely part about uh, peace being the natural state of things. You know, right. nature, there's not always a storm. There's not always a tornado. There's not always an earthquake. Those are actually quite out of the ordinary. It does seem like the natural state of things is peace. And that's something I had never really thought about. Yeah, equilibrium. Yeah. I mean, there have been, you know, pain in my life, trauma. That lasted a while. I mean, but it's like most of my life has been equilibrium. And balance and peace. You're absolutely right. Yeah. That's that's a very cool thought for somebody who has anxiety. Should we close with the final verse here? True words? Yeah. True words are often unpleasant. Pleasant words are often untrue. Those who know the truth do not argue about it. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> this is so great, right? It's like, don't... How, how, how should I parent best? Oh, I don't know. What is the right way? What is the right diet? What is the right exercise plan? What is the right this? It's like something's already gone wrong if you're over-obsessed with those questions. Something's yeah, already gone wrong. that's the key if you go overboard. Those who know the truth do not argue about it. Those who argue do not know the truth. Scholars are seldom the wisest people, and the wise are seldom scholars. Those who steal from others impoverish themselves. Those who give to others become rich. Those who fight do not win. Those who win do not fight. This is the way of the Tao. Don't fight and you will win, you know? Perhaps there's some analog to turn the other cheek there, but it, there's great wisdom in this. Just, just follow nature's example and be at peace. Just be. Unclench, you know? Just Yeah, it, it's a book that's very anti-war. And the war is just another great metaphor for straining too hard. Mm. using force when there's a whole bunch of stuff about rulers we didn't talk about but the best politicians don't rule and where there's no yeah the ones that don't rule with fear that's where where people aren't afraid they are virtuous because they are more relaxed that part was in the uh, fry do great works like frying small fish you know um without fear and uh basically that's how great rulers lead to and where the people aren't afraid, they are virtuous. It's automatic, you mean? Is this what you mean? Yeah. Because when you're afraid, you're rigid. And that's that's the ultimate bad, right? <laughs> Being rigid is not bad, but... Um, I'm going to go back to Emerson. Harmful. 
I would write above the doorpost whim. I wish it were better than whim at the end of the day, but we cannot spend the day in explanation. Not spending the day in explanation is Tao. Mm-hmm. You do what you think is best. You do what you do. And, th- and then you do it again. You know, you don't, not every moment has to be autopsied. Right. And then once you find yourself straining too hard, you probably need to evaluate what you're doing and step back. Sounds so easy. He's right. It's like, it's easy. Just do it. Just click, flip the switch and well, in some, think way less about things. In and- some situations it is. There are pilots who, who's, who say that it's a lot easier to learn how to fly if you're, if you can relax and be calm. I'm saying that. All the pilots that you know? Yeah. No, I just listened to a podcast. It was a running podcast, but it was with a pilot anyway. He said the same rules applied for flying an airplane as running. Basically loosey-goosey. I see, yeah. The the Jack Black way. way. School of Tao. Loosey-goosey. It's a good way to end, isn't it? Today's poem of the day is from Li Po, who in the 700s, more than a millennia and a half ago, was writing poems in China that seem to be about all people everywhere. Here's one called Thoughts on a Quiet Night, translated by David Hinton. Seeing moonlight here at my bed and thinking it's frost on the ground, I look up, gaze at the mountain moon, then back, dreaming of my old home. I hope you enjoyed that chat. I think next, Claire and I will be reading Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, which should be, if nothing else, a change of pace and tone. But in the meantime, I hope you enjoy listening. <laughs>